Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to The Audible, college football's only twice-a-week national college football podcast in the middle of the offseason. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. What do you think about my completely unverified claim there? Oh, I think it's pretty awesome. I love that you call it completely unverified. <laughs> um, I, mean, I haven't combed iTunes for every podcast, but, I mean, come on, give us a little credit. We're still going twice a week in June, and this is a big one. We got a big guest who's been in the news lately. Yeah, I just love the idea that, you know, I think you need to work on this. you got to come up with a completely unverified, quote-unquote, fact every time we do an intro. I think that would be good. America's fastest-growing college football podcast. Can't dispute it. There's nothing out there to dispute it. We're bearing the lead. Last week, Bob Stoops, legendary Oklahoma coach, retires and hands the reins to his offense coordinator, Lincoln Riley. Lincoln Riley, nice enough to join us today on the podcast. And here he is. Joining us now is the new head coach at Oklahoma, Lincoln Riley. Uh, Lincoln, first question is, it's been about a week since you became the head coach. How much have you actually slept since then? <laughs> uh, you know, not a ton. Um, it's, it's, there's been... There's been a lot, but it's, you know, I've enjoyed it. Um, it it's been fun, uh, you know, meeting with all the different people, connecting with recruits, um, spend a lot of time here with our, with our current players. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been a whirlwind. There's, there seems like there's, you know, a, a hundred decisions a day and, and, uh, a lot of people to meet with and talk with, but like I said, it's been fun. I've enjoyed it. It's felt great. There's a, there's a ton of support here. And uh, so, so yeah, I've survived week one, so hopefully <laughs> now I'll make it to week two. Well, that's one thing I often hear when I talk to coaches after they move from a coordinator role to a head coach is oftentimes, as much as they've been around it, they don't really realize until they get the job just how many more demands there are that aren't that aren't, you know, football, that aren't X's and O's, that aren't even necessarily recruiting. Are you already getting a sense of that? I think it's it's new for me, but it wasn't really unexpected. I've, I've had some some interesting mentors kind of throughout, throughout my career that gave me differing amounts of either responsibility or just kind of guidance and insight to – you know what it's like to be this position in this position. Um, you probably can't ever truly understand it until you sit in that chair. Um, but um, I don't think much of it yet has really caught me off guard. I haven't been very surprised by it. It's just it's just doing it and uh, and and you know going from one you know one department to another and and all the different hats that you wear that uh, you know you, you you experience and you and you learn how to deal with it and then you. You get better as you go, and so. Uh, but yeah, I've had some some great people that have helped me along the way. So it wasn't as, I guess it wasn't as much of a, a surprise, but just hey, you, you got to go go, just jump right in and and do your best. And uh, so that's what I've been trying to do. I had seen on uh, your school's website they did a Q and A with you, and the question was best non-athletic talent, and you said probably my memory. 
And one of your colleagues I had just talked to this week who kind of felt the same way. And he said, that's probably why Mike, being Leach, fell in love with him so much. And this person told me a story. He goes, it was our first year at East Carolina. I think it was our third or fourth game. Maybe it was our sixth or seventh. They couldn't really remember exactly what game it was. And there was a play you had uh, put in for Dwayne Harris, who was your star receiver at the Mm -hmm. time. And he said, at one point we got here at OU, and he goes, remember such and such? And it was a a one-name play, I guess, called Falcon. And you drudged it up and kind of put it in for this one game or ran it one time. So I was going to ask, when you have such a memory where – you can go back. You've called tons of different plays and had so many different concepts over the years. How do you kind of file that in where you're not overturning so many stones mentally in the course of not just game planning, but in the course of a game to, to do that and stay focused? I don't know. I, I remember, I, I just have never had a hard time remembering football plays or situations or uh, I have a hard time at times remembering, you know, I have to think twice about my wife's phone number. Um, I really struggle with birthdays. Um, but, yeah, you asked me about a play that, that we called six years ago in this situation. I mean, I could – it just – I don't know. It it just makes sense. I, I don't know exactly how to explain it. But, I, yeah, I've always really re- relied on that memory. Um, I think it's, you know, helped me at a young age. It's helped me, I, I you know, situationally um, in games as far as, you know, I, I, there's – at times a situation comes up in a game that maybe that maybe is a little odd that that you know maybe you haven't thought about in a while but maybe was similar to something that happened years ago and I'm able to you know draw back on that a little bit um, and maybe get some help on on uh, maybe what we did or what we could have done better or you know we called this play in this situation so yeah I, I, I draw back on it a lot um, and yeah as far as kind of keeping it organized um, I don't know it's not I guess it's a little bit more spur of the moment a lot of times for me. Um, again, whether you're you know watching tape, studying an opponent, and you see something that that triggers a memory, and and it's not. And normally when it does, I'm able to kind of remember right where it was and go back and either look at it or put yourself back in that situation, remember the lessons you learned. So, uh, you know, every chance to call plays or to watch film or all that is always a a chance to learn and kind of develop your philosophy. And, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I've always tried to draw back on all those great lessons that I've learned from the experiences I've had, you know, even at a young age as a young coach and uh, the people that I've, you know, been able to work for and with. Can we test you a little bit on this memory? One random? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. we'll go for it. I'm putting it all out there. <laughs> okay. Do you remember the first touchdown play that you had with Baker at OU and what the situation and what you guys called? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was against Akron. Uh, we were on the goal line going in the north end. Um, we handed it to Samaje on a uh, split zone play. He scored. It was on like the left center or left hash. He scored from about the, I don't say about the one and a half. Yeah. So you want to throw a random out at him? Maybe like the play before the crab touchdown reception against uh, Texas? Yeah. I remember it. Yeah, I was. Uh, <laughs> we threw four verts. We threw a comeback to uh, Eddie Britton, um, who was a really good receiver for us. And Eddie dropped the ball. Ball kind of hit off his chest, went straight up in the air. And Blake Gideon, the uh, safety from uh, Texas, uh, they were two man, I think, coverage wise. And he had a chance to chance to pick it off. And we thought he picked it off. And uh, I'm up in the box. And uh, 
you know, Dennis Simmons, who's our receiver coach now, was down on the field, and I see it, and it looks like for sure he picked it. He dove, but it looked like a – and I'm like, oh, you know, geez, we just lost a game. You know, it was, I was like, oh, man. And Dennis was like, no, 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 he dropped it. You know, and Dennis was down there on the field by Mike, and Dennis was right. It, you know, the ball – luckily, he, you know, he didn't make the play, and, and uh, yeah, and then we scored the next one. There you go. I mean, first of all, that's amazing. <laughs> Second of all, do you remember them when you, when you you just rattled all that off? That was from just seeing it live when it happened, or after you've you know watched it and rewatched it on tape. I, I'm not sure. You know, I, that, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, as coaches, most of the stuff, whether it's practice games, whatever that that you uh, that you see, obviously you watch, and so a lot of times, many times over. So. Um, but I mean, I remember, I still remember the emotions and all that of the day, you know, and that's one thing that you, you only live that part of it once or remember, you know, Dennis, you know, me and Mike were thinking we just lost the game and we were probably saying some, some, uh, not so nice words. And, and Dennis was like, no, if you, we're good. We're good. You know, he dropped it, you know, so I, yeah, I still, I still vividly remember that. Do you remember the first time you met me? How about that? Yeah, you came to, you came to Lubbock and we went to, uh, we went and had dinner, um, Golly, now I'm not gonna remember the name of the restaurant. Right there, right there off the right there off University Avenue. That was the first time, wasn't it? It was Do not. You remember? No, I think I was going to see Leach and random guy in the office had to walk me through the facility. <laughs> and uh, you know, I remember making small talk, you know, that yeah. that this guy had played high school football and been a you know, been a quarterback and that was that. And then about three years later, I guess you got you got promoted up. It was, you know, Crab wins the bullet in a cough. And you said, hey, you're not going to remember this. But and I was like, no, I do remember this. I had no idea that was you, you know, because, you know, there was a few guys. It wasn't it wasn't like you guys were like Oklahoma where you had, you know, so many or I'm sorry, like Alabama where you had so many staffers. You know, there weren't that many guys in the room, which obviously turned out to be your benefit. And this leads me to my next question is. So another guy you worked with said uh, Lincoln was always like 20 going on 40 and at that time. And he said it was a compliment, but just about the maturity aspect of it. But I am curious, when you are that way and you're basically the same age as the players and you have a, a lot of guys, I think on the staff at that time, Dana is still around there. Sonny right. Dykes might have still been around yep. there. Uh you know, now that, you know, at the time your running back coach is now the head coach at North Texas. So you had guys who were rising stars. How do you balance wanting to learn, wanting to get responsibility, but at the same time, not, I don't say ruffling feathers, but, but just kind of, you know, some guys it's tricky because it's not like you were Cliff Kingsbury where you're the star player and comes back. So how do you manage that as a, as a, as a young coach trying to, trying to, trying to get ahead? It's funny. Yes, I actually had a conversation with one of our one of our assistant strength coaches about that the exact same subject. I I didn't manage it very good, honestly, in the in the beginning. Um, you know, I I came in and I've always been a person. I was I've never been scared to voice my opinions or um, you know have work hard to maybe have enough confidence to to have you know maybe a good opinion. And so I remember in the beginning, even when I was, you know, just a student assistant, I was 19 years old in there, and I remember, you know, barking out my opinion in a staff meeting or, you know, doing it in a way that wasn't the right way to do it. And uh, I was always 
probably, I was too aggressive about it, too reckless with it in the beginning. And it took some, I had to learn, you know, I had to learn the, you know, the, the hierarchy. I had to learn probably more important than that, that just, there's a right and wrong way to, to do those things. And so, uh, that's been something I've grown and matured upon. I think maybe during the years, you know, or hope, hopefully I have, you know, as far as there's an element to having good opinions and, and caring about the team and all that. And that's important, but also, you know, your ability to work with people. I told our staff this the other night after, after, uh, after I got hired that I think your ability to work with people is more important than just simply how well you do your own job. And, uh, I just think that's, that's critical. And that was a lesson that I had to learn the hard way. Um, but I had some good coaches there that stuck with me and didn't just run me out and, and, uh, that, that, kind of let me grow and, and taught me um, kind of, you know, again, how to deal with people and that the opinions and all that are good, but you got to present them the right way. And, and, uh, and so, uh, yeah, that's, but I, I definitely learned it the hard way. No question. Well, piggybacking off of that, um, the staff you have there now, you've worked with these guys for two years. Uh, they all, you know, think very highly of you, but it's a different dynamic, right? When you are now their boss and including, Mike Stoops, the defense coordinator, who is the brother of the former head coach. Um, what are some of the challenges there? How do you navigate that? Um, you know, that's been something that, and again, it's a it's a different. I, I understand it's it's different when you're the head coach, and and there's more people now. But I've kind of been dealing with that for a long time. I mean, you know, I became a coordinator at 26 um, at East Carolina, and I was you know far and away the youngest guy in the room there. Um, was the youngest guy in the room when I became the coordinator here, you know, two years ago. So that's, you know, I've, I've always enjoyed that part of it. Just the managing of, of people, um, you know, and I think it's, it's critical whether it's, whether it's coaches, whether it's managing the personalities of your players. Um, that's a big part of it. You know, the scheme and all that's great, but, but, you know, everybody better be pointed in the same direction. Everybody, um, you know, better have each other's back and be completely on the same page for it to work. And so, um, you know, honestly, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think helped me probably this first time around so far that, yeah, that I do have these relationships with these guys, um, you know, offensively, obviously having worked with them, you know, every day for the last two years and we have a lot of trust built up there. And then, and even with Mike and I, I, you know, Mike and I have worked very closely together over the last two years and, and, and it's been great. Uh, he's been awesome to work with. Um, I, I think you're, offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator have to be in sync you know I, I don't think it's, it's just as simple like maybe a lot of people might perceive out there that well the defensive guy goes and runs the defense and the offensive guy goes and runs the offense and and that's it and and you know they don't really need to communicate and I, I don't you know I think you got to have a plan going in each week to, to how you're going to win the game you've got to understand you know each other's strengths and weaknesses you got to be able to help each other as far as how you practice um you know, help you know servicing each other um, as far as you know showing each other different looks, um, kind of finding that happy medium, and then I think you got to have an understanding within games that that we're able to adjust offensively, not just based on you know what we're seeing on the other defensive side, but also you know how's the other team playing on offense? What's the flow of the game like? Um, you know what's going to help our defense, and they've got to do the same thing. What's going to help us? And uh, so I think you got to be in sync there. We we certainly have been the last two years, and and I don't see that changing. You guys were in the news a little bit uh, on Wednesday as we taped this uh, a day later. You brought on one of your mentors, Ruffin McNeil, and I I remembered this about 18 months ago. 
the whole college football world is it's in December. It's in New York City for the Football Foundation event. And Ruffin is there. He had just got forced out at his alma mater, ECU. And, you know, a lot of co- other coaches were coming up to Ruffin to pat him on the back and everything. And you guys sat together and your relationship is pretty unique and obviously he's a very well-respected guy what does he bring to you now that you become a head coach for the first time and at what point did you think if I ever become a head coach he might be my first call oh he's yeah we'd take this whole whole uh, interview here to go through his good qualities I mean he's you know he's he's loyal um I trust him I trust him with my life um which that's a and it, and I'm only going to bring people around this program and around our players that that I have that feeling about them. Um, you know, he's going to. I think he and Mike are going to work well together. They had some great initial conversations, and just knowing those two, I think, uh, you know, uh, I, I think that's going to be a great relationship there. Uh, you know, he's he's been a head coach. You know, he's been through a lot of these things that I'm going through or getting ready to go through, and and having a chance to. To rely back on him and to 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 bring him in the office and shut the door and sit down and visit about things or vent or do whatever I need to do is is huge. Um, you know, he brings a, a great special teams background, which you know that's you, you can never have enough of that on the staff, and is absolutely going to be an emphasis here. You know, he's one of the best D line coaches that I've ever seen, um, and I, I think that is to me just such a critical I think it's probably the most critical position in football and uh, a way to add him to a great D-line coach we already have in Calvin Thibodeau I, I think you know we're going to provide a, a, a level of expertise and a, a resource for our D-linemen here that I don't think can be matched anywhere in the country um, so yeah there's just so many you know staff chemistry you know motivation as far as you know with players I mean there's just goes on and on and yeah I thought you know, I never knew. I always figured he would still continue to be a head coach. Um, but yeah, that was you know the second I ever you know even thought about being a head coach. There was no doubt that if I could kind of pick you know that that dream staff that you'd love to start with, there's no question he'd be on it. And thrilled that it worked out here um, at Oklahoma. You guys were also in the news again Thursday um, because the school announced uh, what Baker Mayfield's punishment will be internally. Um, for the arrest, uh, the public intoxication arrest a few months ago, um, was that? I mean, that's a if that's a pretty big decision I have to make right in the first week. Um, how did you arrive at that? Well, I think you just got to step back. You got to let the the legal process play out, and then you've got to look at all the facts that you have. And uh, the the what we decided was, you know, what Baker did was wrong. Um, we recognize that um, and did not set a set a good example. It's not to the standards that we expect here, nor that he expects of himself. Um, and we also looked at how Baker has been both before and after that. I've never had one problem in three years with him, um, and so there's not a not a history. You know, it would suggest that it was, you know, an isolated incident. And then I also look at. You know, I don't see it as a malicious thing. You know, nobody else was hurt. He made a poor decision, um, and uh, we just felt like that was the appropriate response to do something with it that, that's going to benefit other people, you know, raise awareness to uh, get him around our, our local law enforcement for both, to, you know, for himself and, again, to, to be there to help others. And uh, so, yeah, after considering all those, we, we all felt comfortable with that decision.
I know I'd seen somewhere you talked about uh, visiting the Patriots and a lot of people associate you with air raid offense. And when you go to somewhere like the Patriots, obviously there's a lot more than just scheme stuff you're trying to pick up. But what are some of the things that you've gleaned from from being around Bill Belichick a little bit now that you've been up there, I guess, a couple of times? Yeah, it's been great. Um, yeah, I've had to, you know, developed a good relationship with those guys. They've uh, been great to us. Um, yeah, there's so much. You know, you you just you you walk in that building and and you spend a little bit of time there, and it's so easy to tell why they win. You know, they're just the the organization and attention to detail is just is off the charts. Um, you know, they. I'm also impressed. I know he spoke about it recently publicly. Just you know, with the, the they do it with the size of staff that they do. You know, and the thought process of having not as many people, but having people that are more invested, um, and and maybe being easier to manage a smaller amount of people as far as the number of staff. You know, which is obviously a hot topic around college football right now. Um, you know, it's been great to see, you know, there just, just how their leaders work. Um, you know, great lessons for our leaders. I mean, you know, you get a guy that's, you know, arguably, if not the, the greatest, you know, player that's ever lived that still works like he's an undrafted, you know, rookie and, you know, trying to make the team. And so, and, and he's held accountable and he accepts that. And it's, uh, uh, so it's just, yeah, it's amazing just to kind of see their, the culture they've created, their attention to detail, the way they communicate with players. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's been a, a very valuable thing for me and, and one that I've very much appreciated. All right. Well, Lincoln, we appreciate you taking the time. We know it's been a hectic uh, week or so, and I'm sure it's, I'm going to be a sprint right up to the season. So that's right. We, uh, we look forward to seeing you this season. I think I may see you early on, uh, with Fox and Norman. So congratulations on the new job and we will talk to you down the road. Sounds great. Thank you guys for having me on. Well, we appreciate Oklahoma's new coach coming on with us, Bruce. And now let's tee up the mailbag. It's the mailbag from a computer. So not literally a bag, but just mail. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Chris Burke, love the pod. A few weeks back, you discussed teams that could possibly win the national title, yet no mention of Wisconsin. I hate to be the look at the schedule guy for next year, but look at the schedule for next year. It's extremely favorable. And even last year, with a much tougher schedule, they were potentially in the running for the playoff until the second half against Penn State. Considering the makeup of the Big Ten West... And Wisconsin's recent sustained success, I contend Wisconsin has a much better chance next year or in any given year than Miami, Georgia, or Notre Dame would to make the playoff. What do you think about that, Stu? I mean, look, I I read your mailbag earlier this week, and I think you got asked about Miami, and I'm with you. You pointed out that there's a big question mark at quarterback with the Canes. And I actually think just from talking to some folks down there, surprisingly Miami has – you know, one of the areas where they're a little deficient right now is skill talent. It's, you know, there's, they have one great receiver, but some of the, really, areas, cause that reader thought he had, they had national championship talent everywhere, but quarterback. Yeah. I think that's a little, that's an area where they're going to have to bolster. Um, but get to, to what we're looking at here at Wisconsin. Let's go look at the schedule a little bit. So Utah state, you know, they've been, they've struggled uh, last year, Matt Wells's team. Then they have Lane Kiffin's team, FAU, who actually does have some talent, but I don't think they're going to be able to do it. But week three at BYU, that is not an easy place to play. That's, those are two very physical teams. Mm-hmm. If you're Wisconsin and you hope to get in the playoff, 
Um, they have a tricky three. I don't know if it's a. It's not a three week stretch. It's a three game stretch at BYU. Then they host Wisconsin. Then they got to go. They host Northwestern. Yes, I'm sorry. And then they have to go to Nebraska the week later. I think Nebraska is going to be pretty dangerous this year. You think they can make it through all three of those games unscathed? Well, I don't know. I mean, if they're going to make the playoff, they could probably lose once. And I think he's right. It's a fairly favorable schedule. They don't play Ohio State. They do play Michigan at home late in the season. No Penn State either. No Penn State either. I just feel like whenever we play this game, like last year we thought their schedule was going to be so brutal and they handled it. Now you're going to say it's easy and it might not be. But to his question, I would actually agree that there's a better chance of Wisconsin making the playoff this coming year than the three teams he mentioned. But he asked off the top about winning the national title. And I would just go back to what I've said before about a team like Michigan State. You know, Wisconsin, they bring back a great team. Nine starters on offense. I love Jazz Peavy. He's a great playmaker. Uh, you've got guys like Connor Sheehy, uh, Jack Sitchie back on defense. Coded Dixon, love him. So Wisconsin, theoretically, yeah, they could win the Big Ten. They could make the playoff. But are they then going to win consecutive games against an Alabama a USC, a Clemson, a Florida State, I don't think they would. Yeah, and on top of it, which would give me pause, uh, first year, we love Jim Leonard, right? But this is the first year he's a coordinator. Yeah, we uh, talked about that You know, they, uh, maybe a month ago. You got to replace T.J. Watt, who who made a ton of big plays. Uh, their team leader in, in interceptions gone, the really good cornerback, Sojourn Shelton gone, Vince Beagle. Who's, who made a bunch of plays for him when he was healthy. I'm going to miss him. The other thing I look at is they don't, you know, they get they get uh, Michigan at home. They get Michigan later in the year. And I think if you want to play Michigan with all those new faces that are going to be starters, I think you want to get Michigan early. I don't think you want to get them that later in the year when these guys have had more time to gel. And he's right. You don't have to, you know, as we said, you don't have to play Ohio State or Penn State in the regular season. But you're probably still going to have to beat Ohio State uh, or Penn State coming out of the out of that title game if you get that far. So it's not going to be it's not easy. Like I said, and they do have to go to BYU. That's not an easy place to play. But get, I mean, Paul Chris, you know, give him a lot of credit. That team last year handled a a really tough schedule. Mm-hmm. Beat uh, LSU off the bat. I mean, the two losses were at Michigan by a touchdown and to Ohio state in overtime. So really good season last year. And, and I think they could replicate that. I don't think they're going to win the national championship next. Uh, this question is from Jay on the six, nine podcast on the June 9th podcast. You discuss rivalries like Iowa versus Iowa state as an example of a rivalry where one side has much more to lose than the other. You were looking for other examples. How about Notre Dame versus any service academy, Navy in particular? There are historic reasons why ND Navy will continue as long as Navy wants it to, but it has always been a no-win proposition for Notre Dame. Yeah, I mean, it gets back to what our friend Tim Brando was saying the other day. This is why it's so hard for them to win a national title, because every year you've got to, you have to play Stanford, you have to play USC, you have to play Navy. Uh and then the whatever AC Clemson or Florida, whatever ACC teams are going to throw at them that year. It's really hard. Yes, it's kind of a no-win thing against Navy. I mean, it's a rivalry that dates to a time when they were on much more equal footing. Obviously, uh, they're not now, and, and Navy has gotten them a few times recently. But the only difference is I'm sure that game means a ton to Navy, 
it's not it's not like Navy is Notre Dame's bitter rival the way Iowa and Iowa State are, right? I mean, it's I, I don't know that you would necessarily call it. It's it's more like a, a series and a tradition than it is a rivalry. Yeah, that's fair. I I can see it on both sides. James, Asheville, North Carolina. I just saw something interesting scroll across the screen, but it's the off season. I'm too lazy to Google it. What's the deal with the UCF kicker and his YouTube channel that he's reportedly being asked to suspend in order to maintain amateur status? What is he doing that would blow his eligibility? You know, I, I got to admit, I saw this kind of come up because people were tweeting it and I didn't really dig into much of it short of, I forgot who put this out there. I think it got retweeted by some players, which was that NCA commercial about most of us are going to go pro in something other than their own sport. And why is the NCA kind of uh, peeing in this kid's oatmeal, so to speak? Really? Is that how they put it? Well, the peeing in his oatmeal was kind of a little cliche that I threw onto it. But yes. I've actually, I'm going to tell you something. I don't know if this is embarrassing to me, but I've never heard that cliche. Well, that means you're probably better to, to go to brunch with them. <laughs> so basically... I've seen other stories like this over the years where a guy was an aspiring rapper and couldn't profit off his music or uh, there's been several like these. And basically, yeah, you can't I mean, it's so stupid, but the rule is you can't profit off your likeness in any way. And so I guess they're saying he's a YouTube star, but is he a YouTube star in part because of his exposure from playing college football for UCF, which I would say no is not the case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's a here's an, a question I have for you, and you just said it, and it kind of was, I thought about this a little bit. So Will Greer, who is a much more high-profile college football player on the field than this kid is, Will Greer obviously had success, was undefeated as a starting quarterback at, at Florida, and now is going to be the starter and has big expectations at West Virginia. Will Greer's two younger brothers are, are social media stars. They have millions of followers. If there was a way for them to leverage that because they moved out here to LA and have agents. And I think they, you know, have been homeschooled. I want to say to finish high school, but they are leveraging that they are not college athletes, but I'm sure that, you know, they could contribute, you know, to some of the social media heft that will has, um, is that something, you know, the NCA would try to try to crack down on too. I'm not saying that this is, is in the works. I'm just saying on the hypothetical because we've seen examples where it's an athlete and he's, you know, maybe the best athlete in the conference or whatever. And I remember this with Johnny Manziel when he started, when he had t- retweeted something from some like, I always say it's an apparel company it was some like local, maybe local clothing business or something, or it's a kid says, Oh, I really loved uh, such and such restaurant. And you're thinking, okay, you know, this is probably harmless. But is the NCAA going to say, okay, this kid's get eating free at a place where in reality probably a lot of, you know, that probably goes on in a lot of college towns. Like where do you draw the line with this stuff? And something like that, it depends on how vigilant compliant. I mean, some schools compliance officials would crack down on that on anything that remotely would even come off as an endorsement. Some might be a little bit more lax on it. I have to back up a second. You know, I have to admit neither of us were fully informed about the UCF kicker story. And he is uh, he is using his likeness in that it says the his, his most popular video, which got 250,000 views, was a portrayal. It was like a satire of how quarterbacks are prima donnas in everyday life and was taped inside the UCF sports facilities. Well, how many times have we seen the schools themselves put out 
funny video. In fact, I can think of one off the top of my head uh, when Northwestern hit that crazy Hail Mary shot against Michigan to make the NCAA tournament. The very next day, the school put out a YouTube video of Clayton Thorson, their quarterback, and one of their receivers trying to recreate that unsuccessfully on the basketball court. So it's okay for the school to put it out, put out a parody involving their current athletes, but it's not okay for an athlete himself to do that? Come on. Yeah, I think that's a bad look for the NCAA. Hey, Stu and Bruce, longtime listener, first-time male bagger. With outrage seemingly every week over transfer rules, why not adopt a European soccer loan model where the transferring or loaned-in-Europe player can transfer anywhere he likes. However, if the two schools happen to play each other, he is ineligible, unable to play in that one game only. So if Antoine Jackson wanted to leave Auburn for Ohio State, he's eligible immediately unless those two schools play while he's on the roster. What's the downside of that? There's no downside to that, and it's actually a pretty creative idea and would certainly be an improvement on being blocked entirely. I mean, it might allow guys to transfer in conference more frequently and they would just have to sit out that one game. But, and I think you agree, we would much rather they just lift the restrictions altogether. Agreed. I'm, I'm t- in total agreement with you. Okay. From Joel in South Carolina. Hey, Bruce and Stu. With Bob Stoops' retirement, there are only four active head coaches who have won an FBS national championship. I spent my lunch break adding up the numbers for every season since World War II. Holy cow. And... That's tied for the lowest ever. From the peak in 2008, he really looked up every year since World War II. Wow. I don't know what Joel from South Carolina does for a living, but if he doesn't like that, he should go become a researcher at either Fox or ESPN or someplace. Oh, boy. That does Did you just threaten Hadley's job for Joel in South Carolina? I didn't. Anyway, this is a pretty fascinating nugget. So basically, so only is this wasn't that long ago. In 2008, there were 13 head coaches prowling the sidelines with a national championship to their name. We're suddenly down to four. Why do you think the number has gotten so low? Two words, my friend, Nick Saban. He has all of them. <laughs> Right? Isn't that the reason? Well, let's see some of these people. Nick Saban didn't have anything to do with Larry Coker falling out. Uh, did he have something to do with Phil Fulmer? Maybe. Kind of early in Saban's run, but yeah. Yeah. Um, i trying to think of some of these other ones that we're talking about here. I mean, would Bobby Bowden have still been coaching in 2008? Yes. Mm-hmm. But Jimbo wouldn't have been. You know, like it's like a wash on that So one, that was right? a wash, yep. Mac Brown, nothing on Nick Saban. Gene Chizik, definitely Nick Saban. Oh, yeah. And his own issues. Steve Spurrier, perhaps. Steve Spurrier was going to retire at some point. I really do think, like, I mean, in in the time he's talking about since 2008, Urban Meyer won two more. Nick Saban won four more. So you're talking, I mean, these guys just have kind of I thought there was more parity these days than there, and maybe there's less parity. There's definitely less parity. And those, with those guys winning so many in a short amount of time, there's just uh, fewer to go around. Like, let's say Nick Saban doesn't get into that 2011 game. You know what? You gave a way better answer. You know, I don't know if you thought about this when you saw this question and started thinking about this. Because we didn't mention Les Miles. He's no, you know, he would be one of those who's not. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely affected by Saban. Yeah. I mean, I think this is like, should be a multifaceted answer, but... Um, and just to be clear, when I brought up Saban, I was thinking solely in terms of like, well, he's won all the national titles, so there aren't any for the rest of them. But you're right. As you go down the list, you, there's several of these national championship coaches who are no longer in the game, and Saban had something to do with it. 
yeah, I mean, he either raised the bar too high or like in the case of Gene Chizik and the case of Les Miles. I mean, I think he directly had a big role in that and why those schools, you know, washed their hands of it. So interesting. Thank you for the research, Joel. Let us know if there's anything else, um, any other big research projects you have coming. <laughs> uh, isn't Jason Gorlewski also from South Carolina, by the way? Columbia, South Carolina, in fact. Man, some heavyweights, audible listeners in South Carolina. My turn, Stu. This question is from Chris Miller. Recent Stu questions for you guys about the neutral site games to kick off the season. My guys, NC State, opened the year at South Carolina against the South Carolina team at a neutral site. Like 2012, when they opened at a neutral site against UT, it will not be close to a sellout. Between ticket sales from the school, many times which are not met, and travel costs, I can't see the financial incentives for these games opposed to a seventh home game. So I don't know the details of the NC State South Carolina contract, but it's not like a bowl game. Uh, you don't take a hit. The schools aren't going to take a hit if they don't sell a certain amount of tickets, I don't believe. That's certainly not the case with the Atlanta game or the Dallas game or whatnot. Uh, and also, you're just going there for the game. You're not, you know, a lot of times when you hear about right. when you spend travel costs, that's because you stay at the place for six days and you're staying in a luxury hotel and all that. Um, no, I mean, and you have to eat at restaurants and there's a lot of other costs. I mean, these are just strictly TV matchup games. These neutral site matchups, the there's a re, they're at NFL stadiums and the NFL stadiums and the teams behind them basically write you a check to guarantee that you'll make as much, if not more, than you would playing this game at home. Uh, it's it's definitely a winning financial proposition. Now, you could argue, you know, are they taking a home game away from their own community and, uh, and then because of that affecting their local businesses and whatnot, or just, you know, making it harder for your own fans to go see the game? Those are all valid points. But, uh, but when they're I, one-offs like this, I mean, you would prefer a home-and-home, but usually there aren't home-and-homes. But why couldn't NC State and South Carolina do a home-and-home? That seems perfectly reasonable for those two teams. Yeah, I guess the only, I don't know, if you do one, I mean, if you're South Carolina, you're already playing one ACC team every year. That's true. Uh, in your arch rival, I don't know. By the way, when I think of the ultimate neutral site remember game for me, was Virginia Tech against Boise State. What do you remember most about that game? Getting completely lost on the way yes. there and ending in up. Three in three different and states. And ending up at one point, trying to get to Landover, Maryland. And at one point, I remember seeing signs for Dulles Airport. And I was like, this can't be good. Uh, the, but the point of that was, you know, that was clearly that was an NFL stadium. You know, that was basically felt like a de facto Virginia Tech home game, but it really wasn't. And I do think, you know, I, I still would rather see the matchup than not. But do people care about the not sold out stadium that much? Well, the question is, uh, what's in it for the stadium, right? So when, when Florida State and Alabama play in Dallas, that's going to be sold out. Uh, or no, in Atlanta, that's going to be sold out. Florida, Michigan, I don't know exactly. I assume it'll be, if not a sellout, pretty close to it. And so the it's a that's a winning proposition for the Cowboys or or the I think it's the the Peach Bowl that helps put on the uh, it is the Peach Bowl that puts on the opening opening mm -hmm. game. But like, what's in it? What's in this for sh the Charlotte Stadium? Or last year, remember Arizona played BYU in the Cardinal Stadium and. And and even though it was in the state of Arizona, there weren't that many Arizona – like BYU came strong. There weren't that many Arizona fans. I mean uh, uh, here, Levi Stadium hosted an Oregon-Cal game on a Friday night a few years ago, half full. You know, are they making money off this or is it more 
we just want to kind of, you know, we need more events at the stadium. Um, you know, suite holders are often the ones that, you know, they, they, they buy these suites on the promise of X number of events per year and they have to fill that. I don't know. This will be an interesting story for somebody. Not you. You're not that interested in doing it, though. I might start making some calls. I might look into that. All right. Readers, be on the lookout. S.L. Mandel is on the case. (laughs) No promises. Hey, Bruce and Stu, this is from Jonathan Willis. Last year, there was a push in my district to get Tim Tebow to run for the vacant House of Representative seat. Former athletes have typically performed very well in House races, not so much for Senate races, and he looked like he would have had a very strong chance of winning. Oh, I'm sure he would have won. I don't even know who he was going up against. Tebow ended up going a different route, but it led me to wonder, which current or relatively recent college football stars could you see having a political career? I've got a few that have come to mind. Uh, as I've said before, I'm counting down until Myron Roll can run for something. I think he did our podcast and we figured out he has about, he's going to have to go be a neurosurgeon for 10 years because he's invested all the time and the, where his clock would be. I know he does have some political interest. And he knows a lot of heavy hitters in the in, in politics from Bill Clinton to Jeb Bush and and beyond. Uh, I got a, I got one of them, uh, uh, Joshua Perry. He finished up at Ohio State two years ago. Um, he's very thoughtful. He does a lot of community service. He's now out here in L.A. with the Chargers. I could see him someday down the road uh, getting involved in that. Mine would be Ty Darlington. He was a senator at Oklahoma a couple years ago and. I mean, he, they were already talking about it then when he was still there. Like, oh, yeah, this guy's going to be a congressman or a senator one day. Uh, Same team, by the way, Trevor Knight. Um, I remember being at an OU practice. This was probably like three years ago. I remember watching how Trevor Knight handled himself with uh, people who were like friends of the program, players, parents and everything. He has a presence to him where I could see him. If he chooses to do that, I could see Trevor Knight being a successful politician. Who else you got? What about um, Khaled Holmes? Yeah, he's very well read on a lot of things. I mean, his NFL career, he's been with the Colts for a little bit and bounced around. That's definitely a good one. Yeah. Look, I think there's probably lots and lots of guys that would fit this bill, but we don't know them all. I mean, if if we did a poll of every, if like we found a beat writer for every team and said, hey, you know, who have you covered recently? We could probably could have a pretty big list. But yeah, I'm, just, I'm sure there's a guy in every, like David Robinson's son. Oh, who, oh, who, oh, know, we're for the obvious one. Uh, Chris Conley. Oh, from Georgia. Yeah. yeah. But I also don't know. So, I mean, we're basically just rattling off guys who we think are very, like, articulate and ambitious and and could be a strong leader. We don't know if they have any interest in, in going into politics. Well, we know some of them do. We know Myron has, Myron has, has engaged the discussion. Yeah. Um, so I could see that. Yep. Um, we've got one last one here from Corey. Bruce and Stu, in light of the recent Stu's retirement, ongoing discussions about what will happen when Bill Snyder and Nick Saban retire... Uh, if coaches have a chosen successor on their staff in place, and obviously Kansas State does, shouldn't fans expect this timing to continue? In other words, guys leaving in the middle of the offseason so they promote their guy. Bobby Johnson did that at Vanderbilt to give his staff a chance to prove their ability and or time to find their next gig while still earning a paycheck. Uh, the example I always think of is Dean Smith doing that and Bill Guthridge getting the job. What do you think? Will we'll, When it comes time for Nick Saban to retire – and if he really wants Jeremy Pruitt or whoever to be the, the head coach, does he pull this? I don't think Nick Saban would do that. I think there's just too many guys who've been there. Um, Bill Snyder case is very, very specific and kind of unique. Um, I'm not sure I see it with Saban. I can't think of too many other places where I could see that 
see a, you know, a dynamic that even feels at all like that, right? Because most places, uh, you know, you look at Virginia Tech, Frank Beamer really elevated Virginia Tech. They handled it, I thought, with Babcock, the new, relatively new AD came in there, handled it well, got a very good replacement in, in Justin Fuente. But it wasn't, you know, there was a lot of talk about Bud Foster being that guy. To manage it and to keep that guy on in a role where he's still really good, in the case of Foster as a defensive coordinator, I think is really hard. So outside of K-State, you know, with the transfer story, you know, it's a different AD is in there. I think there's just too many pieces. And in the case of Alabama, you know, if you're Greg Byrne, you're the new AD there, and we both have a ton of respect for, for Greg, good luck replacing Nick Saban. You know, no matter how good you hire, it's almost impossible to hire somebody who's going to have anywhere near the success Nick Saban had, right? That That's going to be one of the all-time difficult decisions. Who I mean, because he doesn't, there's been so much movement on his staff. He doesn't necessarily have, I mean, everybody thought it might be Kirby Smart, but that's that's gone. But, of course, Lincoln look, Riley could, was only at Oklahoma for two years. So, you know, it could be somebody we're not even thinking of yet. You know, look, if Kirby Smart, you know, gets it cranked up at Georgia, you know, it's his alma mater. I know. Would he ever think to go, oh, do I want to leave? You know, why? I don't know. Why would you leave? You wouldn't. Georgia, if you're if you had so much success that Alabama would be interested and you're from there to go, then, you know, you're going to be, be, take over for Nick Saban. It's just hard to jump in the middle of that. If you are the unlucky soul that gets <laughs> that, that makes the decision to go be Nick Saban's successor after the greatest run in college football history Say, bake, you know, you'll get paid very handsomely. Invest that money well because you're going to need it three to four years down the road. There is almost no chance that that person won't get fired four years later because because the program has only one direction to go after he retires. Yeah, I, I don't know if there's – I would say an absolute you're going to get fired within three or four years, but – I would put a very high likelihood on that. Because the only way you would be able to prove that you're a worthy successor to Nick Saban is to keep winning national championships. If you suddenly go three years and you haven't, um, you've won like ten games a year, but you haven't won, you're not good enough. Uh, Nick Saban, four years from now, is he still the head coach at Alabama? You're getting right up onto the window of where I think he probably won't be. Like if you said two years, yes, I think he will. He will turn sixty-six on Halloween. Four years from now. I'm going to say no. You're going to say no. So he is doing He is doing ESPN. He's on the set of College Game Day or something, you think then? Or he's going off to his lake house, never to be seen again. Hmm. He is 65, turning 66 this year. Um, Well, four years from now, he wouldn't yet be 70. He would turn 70 that following season. So I'll go ahead and say he stays four more seasons and then that after that. Okay. That's, that's your prediction. That is your prediction. Put it in the headline. Put it in the headline. <laughs> Put it in the headline. <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's there for perpetuity, and uh, we can revisit in four years, see if I got it right or not. Okay. Hopefully, we'll still be doing a podcast in four years. Hopefully. Uh, this question is from Jacob Fontenot. Can we get an audible podcast full blitz breaking down the 2018 College Football Hall of Fame finalists? Uh, I told them we would answer that. I, we didn't get to it like a week or so ago, but I think it's only fair we did that now. Um, to me, this is a loaded group. Now, there's some leftover guys from the previous you know, past few years, but 
we've talked about how bizarre the college football Hall of Fame is, where there's a lot of guys, and you're like, man, this guy's not in there. I mean, starting on the list is Eric Dickerson. I don't get it at all. How is Calvin Johnson eligible already? Yeah, I mean, it, it's strange. All right, so getting past the confusion about why certain people are, are on here or not, I'm going to go through this with you, and we'll des- we'll decide whether we'll go yay or nay, okay? Uh, you got to limit me to how many I can add on. Well, I don't even know how many. How many of these get to go in? Let's say a dozen. Okay, I mean, maybe more than that. But let's you say. get a dozen. It's a really long list. So, uh, ready? Morton Anderson, Michigan State place kicker, 1981 first team All American. If I only get a dozen, sorry, Morton, I can't use you. Agreed. Here's this one. Mark Bavaro, Notre Dame tight end, one of only two Notre Dame tight ends all time to be named a first team All American by the AP. I'm going to hold off. Me too. Okay. This one I'm going to say yay to. Michael Bishop, Kansas State quarterback. I'm going to hold off on that one, too. All right. So I'm at one. You're at zero. Um, Lomas Brown. I'm going to hold off on that one. I'm going to hold off on it, too. Terrell Buckley. I'm taking him. Uh, led the nation in interceptions one year. All-time leader. Had 21 picks. I'll say yes to him, too. Okay. Larry Burton. Produced split end. First team All-American and outstanding college athlete of America in 1974. Why is he only coming up now? I'm going to say nay. I'm going to say nay. Keith Byers, Ohio State running back, unanimous first-team All-American and Heisman Trophy runner-up, who led the nation in rushing all-purpose yards and scoring in 1984. Fifth all-time on Ohio State's all-purpose yards I'm gonna, and 3,200 yards. I'm going to say nay. Wow, you're tough, although we are still only in the beat. I know what's coming down this list. I'm going to say yay. Greg Carr, Auburn linebacker, consensus, 1984 consensus first-team All-American. I'm going nay. I'm going to say nay. Mark Carrier, USC DB, two-time first all-time, uh, first team All-American and 1989 Thorpe Award winner. I am going to say... Just do it. Nay. Pull the trigger. Nay. No, because I know I got another USC DB I got to put in here that's coming up. So Matt Cavanaugh, Pittsburgh quarterback. I remember how good that team was, um, but still I got to say nay. Trevor Cobb, Rice running back, Doak Walker winner and consensus first team All-American 1991. Nay. Marco Coleman, Georgia Tech linebacker, 91 first team All-American. I'm going to say nay. Kerry Collins, Penn State quarterback, 94, consensus first time All-American, winner of the Maxwell and Davey O'Brien Awards. Mm, I'm going to say nay this year. Tim Couch. I'm saying yay. That's seven NCAA records, basically. I'm, I'm with up. you on that one and the next one, which is Eric Crouch. Yeah, I agree. Kenneth Davis, TCU running back, 1980. Why is there so many 1984? We have the whole 84 All-American team on here. He's the uh, 84 unanimous first-team All-American, fifth on Heisman Trophy voting. Led TCU to its first bowl in 19 years. I was tempted on this, but I'm going to say nay. Rich Diana, Yale running back, first-team All-American in 81. I remember him, but I'm going to say nay. Hard to believe a Yale running back was the first team All-American. The next one's a no-brainer, Eric Dickerson. Yeah, we get it. There was a car involved or whatever. I'm sure there's a lot of cars that are involved in the College Football Hall of Fame somewhere along the way. John Didion, Oregon State Center, two-time All-American and member of the Oregon State team known as the Giant Killers in 1968. Have you ever heard of John Didion before this moment? Nope. No, sorry, me neither. But somebody's got to put in the guys from 1968. We're just not old enough to to be capable. This guy's near and dear to my heart because of my Cincinnati Bengals roots, and that is Ricky Dixon, Oklahoma defensive back, 87 consensus, first-team All-American and Thorpe Award winner. 
I would say yay. I'm going to say yay too, although I may be biased. Jumbo Elliott, Michigan, offensive tackle, two-time first-team All-American and consensus in 87. I'm going to say nay because I know what's coming down the pipe in a little bit. Kevin Falk, LSU running back, 96 first-team All-American, fourth in NCAA all-purpose yards. I'm say nay. Another former Bengal 88 Super Bowl team guy, David Fulcher, Arizona State defensive back, two-time first-team All-American. The thing I remember about him is he was the world's biggest defensive back. He was like a 240-pound safety. Uh, I want to say, uh, I'm going to say yay. I got to be honest. I did not realize just how long this list is. I think we're going to have to do lightning round or something, all right? Okay. Ready? Robert Gallery, Iowa offensive tackle. No. Mo Gardner, Illinois defensive tackle. At some point, but not now. Tony Gonzalez, Cal tight end. Nay. Martin Gramatica, Kansas State. No. Martin, I'm putting him in there. Jacob Green, A&M defensive lineman. And I'll say yes. All right, here's what we're going to do at this point. Just tell me who the other guys are that you are putting in. Okay. Would you put in Rocket Ismail? Yes. You would put in Not top 50 of all time, but yes, Hall of Famer. Would, would you put in Calvin Johnson? Whew. I don't think so. Uh, and it's not his fault. It's Reggie Ball's fault. I, I, I don't know that he had that kind of career. He had... Um, he finished with 2,927 career receiving yards. Rick Leach. I, I think so. Ray Lewis. You're the one who told me that you don't consider him to be like first tier of the all-time green. I, here's my problem. When I said you, the USC thing, Miami has three great football players, like basically football legends who are up this time. I think he's actually the third best of the Miami players on this group when he was in college. Okay, skimming here, I'm, I'm nay on Cade McNown, but I think I would strongly consider Sean Moore from Virginia. Yeah, I, I would do the same. Leslie O'Neill from Oklahoma State, I would put in. I'm surprised he's not in. He's in, oh, I love this one, Paul Palmer from Temple. Yeah, Boo Boo Palmer. I would, I'm would. i surprised he's not in already. He's in, so is my next guy, Jake Plummer. Yeah, he's a definite for me, too. Anthony Poindexter, uh, Virginia. Man, you're right. The, the, it's really a backloaded list here. Yeah, I'm going to say no. I know you're saying yes to the next one, and that's Troy Palomalu. Yeah, he's a definite. Oh, here's another definite. Antoine Randall L. Yeah, same here. I mean, he, he put that program in. Mean, they weren't that good, but he was he was so much fun to watch. Ed Reed, no-brainer? Ed Reed, no-brainer. Simeon Rice, Rice no-brainer? No-brainer, no yeah. Warren Sapp? I think he's the second best of those three Miami players. Matt Stinchcomb, two-time first-team All-American. I'm sorry. I, I'm gonna, he'll get in next year. How about that? Taylor Stubblefield is a really fun Purdue receiver to cover, but I don't think I'm putting him in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, we're on two Aaron Taylors, the Nebraska one and the Notre Dame one. I got to put that Notre Dame one higher because I worked with him and I like him. So this guy was really good. Troy Vincent, Wisconsin. He was really good. Jeez, and he was a good returner. Um, Lorenzo White is coming down the list here. Patrick Willis, I got to stick Patrick Willis in. Patrick Willis is definitely. Charles Woodson. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We probably went way over the limit. Somebody's going to have to explain to me how they get all those guys in. All right. How many coaches do we get to put in? You only get one, Stu. Really? Only giving you one. So we're going to read the list here, and you're going to make a decision. First name, Frank Beamer. Then it's Mac Brown, Jim Carlin, Pete Cawthorn, Billy Jack Murphy, and Daryl Rogers. Who's the one coach you're putting in? Mr. Frank Beamer. I think we're in agreement there. 
No, we're in agreement. Look, Mac did a great Mac job. Mac will get in there. Uh, but if you're yeah. giving me one, that's who I'm going with. All right. So when do these guys actually – When does this is the class that will get announced next January, right? Yeah, they used to time it the morning of or the day before the national title game. But I don't think they're doing that anymore. Uh, prior to the CFP national champion – we look forward to revealing it. Prior to the CFP National Championship in Atlanta and the esteemed home of the... That's true. This year, the championship game is in Atlanta where the College Football Hall of Fame is. Have you been to the um, College Football Hall of Fame? I have not. Have you? I, w- I went when it was in South Bend, but I have not been to it since I moved to Atlanta. So looking forward to that. Yeah. We went a little bit long here, but uh, I think it was worth it. As always, send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And as always, if you enjoy... The only college football podcast coming to you twice a week in the dead of the offseason. Please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get podcasts. Tell 10 of your friends about it. We'll see you next time.